Hello, my name is Lizzie Palmer and this is another episode of Lunar Poetry Shorts. Today we are in my house and I am joined by the lovely Tim Kiley. Hello Tim. Hello Lizzie. Good How are you? Very well, thank you. Very well. Freezing and bitten with cold, but yes. otherwise basically holding together. Winter has arrived. It has, definitively. Uh, so, as usual, we will start with a poem, please. Okay. This is Sestina on an unknown Italian artist. I now know that it is not in fact a true Sestina, but nevertheless, I like the title, so it's staying. He was young when he first found he could paint, making a palette of his plate, his bread, the brush, the pulped fruit he found he could move to mimic that consistency of flesh. Soon after, he was wanted by the church, and this was held itself a miracle. His first commissioned piece, The Miracle of Feeding the Five Thousand, did so move a visiting bishop who swore no paint could ever render in such brilliant flesh this Christ munificent here, breaking bread. He said he might, one day, give the whole church just such a splendid rendering, and the church would number him among the saints. His paint would flush each once-remembered miracle with pious colour. His last supper bread, Lazarus shuddering from the tomb, the flesh of Christ sky-searing and transfigured, move tears from the faithful. And yet he would move, in later years, away from miracle. You might see, entering his local church, Judas's dark plumb line, the temple bread eaten by David, Jacob scored in paint, offering blind Isaac his plate of flesh. He needs must love us in our sickly flesh, it seems. This Christ he would let himself paint, only rarely, and who even the church did not find fit for purpose. Miracle gave way to Ecce Homo. Did we move him who had taken our tears as his bread? In this way, it would seem, he earned his bread, the guide tells me, as we move round the church somewhere near Urbino. Her learned remove cannot dull altogether that the flesh is sharp as ever, more's the miracle, until the end there was the will to paint. Beautiful. Thank you, Tim. No problem. Uh, so, my first question for you is the one we always begin with, and that is, why poetry? Hmm. Um... I think I can't really answer it without going back to the effects that I remember of the very, very earliest poems that I heard read aloud um, had on me in a very, very tangible way. Um, I, I mean, I've been acquainted with versification before, I guess, as a way of expressing yourself. I got brought up on a a very strong diet of Roald Dahl's Revolting Rhymes and Dirty Beasts when I was much, much younger, as I suspect a lot of people did. But very, there are two experiences that really kind of stand out for me. Very, One very shortly after our, my family moved to the UK. I was about eight years old. Um, and I remember hearing read aloud for the first time uh, Alfred Tennyson's The Eagle uh, by my then English teacher, Mr. Braithwaite. It did not, um, in later years, go on to be a huge fan of Tennyson, but that poem still sticks with me as this compacted, brilliant, charged instance of um, feeling like I had kind of had my view of the world knocked sideways a bit. Um, and I remember a very similar thing happening a few years later when I was I would have been about uh, 14, 15, starting my, um, my English GCSEs. 
as I suspect a lot of other people uh, encountered it for the first time there, uh, reading At a Potato Digging by Seamus Heaney, who would then go on to be one of my kind of heroes, I guess, uh, as a model for writing poetry, and particularly uh, coming to the first time, for the first time to the phrase, in a million wicker huts, beaks of famine snipped at guts. Um, there have been other instances since then, but those two kind of crystallise for me um, most clearly why I think and continue to think that poetry has an important job to do for us as human beings. Um, as grandiloquent as that might sound, I think that it it speaks to me of this potential and possibility to view the world um in a way that offers new possibilities, a way to look at the world through a different prism of language, to look at it slant-wise, and to have that experience, whether it be disturbing or celebratory or affirmative or sometimes just electrifying you with, with the movement of it all, um, that to me, I think, answers something quite fundamental about why we need poetic language as a way of seeing and experiencing the world yeah. um, and how that then has to kind of find its way out of me whenever I try and have an encounter with something like that um, it, I, I, I suppose yeah it's a very very long way to go around of saying that I do it because I think I think really it sometimes just leaves me with no other choice. I, <laughs> I have to I have to meet the language in that way and yeah. I have to see what the experience works on me and, and what hopefully it works on, on, on a reader or an audience when I, when I come to it. Yeah, great. Um, so obviously you've, you've just covered um, a few of your influences. Mm. Did you want to talk to us a little bit more about some of your other influences as a writer? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah, I, like I said, I've already mentioned uh, Heaney uh, as somebody who I think really probably had the most lasting and uh, lasting impact, and the one that went down the deepest. Uh, after I, yeah, after I studied him, I would then kind of take his collections and the way that he would write about about poetry and the craft of poetry as well as the stuff that he actually wrote. He was a great critic as well as a great practitioner of his craft. Um, occasionally, you know, holding on to them with the regard that I imagine some obscure religious cults hold on to their holy books. Um, in addition to that, I think probably the people from whom I've picked up the most about my own poetic method and sounded out my own voice best in the last few years. Um, through Seamus Heaney, I came to be acquainted with um, the Polish poet Zbigniew Herbert, uh, who's also been a big influence on me in terms of how I, um, how I regard the job of poetry and how I try and allow it to work on me when it happens. Don Patterson uh, does a similar thing to me now um, in a slightly more naturalistic strain. Um, somebody like Alice Oswald or Jean Sprackland particularly. Um, uh, I think those probably are the ones that stand out the most. If I branch out from there, then I think the list of influences risks becoming incalculable. Yeah. <laughs> There's just too many of them. Um, the more you, the, uh, the more you, the more of the gods you worship, the more spring up. Um, so no, I, I, I think that that probably does the job adequately for now. Right. Well, perhaps then um, at this point we'll have your second poem. Sure. Um, this is um, 
a poem that has changed in some respects since I first wrote it, particularly when I, I took it to New Orleans around this time last year. Um, and in the act of performing it, um, several new bits and pieces became added to it. So it's um, it's more of a it's it's a very living thing, uh, I suppose, uh, in a way that some of the other poems aren't as obviously at first. This is reasons for learning and chanting the suttas. Karaniyamata kusalena yantan santang padang abhisame chasa go uju chasu uju chasu va cho chasamudu anatimani. For the sake of the tune, for your fullness of voice, for what remains in some muscle memory of the mass and of incense, to keep words to hand, your metas or your nibanas, which will never fully translate themselves, but keep their strangeness intimately. To sound out an authority in the opening of a vowel. To know salutation in the small of the back, the pronunciation of prostration, since the mind learns no faster than the body which bows. Or simply for this, it is reason enough that things are forgotten, or rather forget their way to us if we do not remember to make our mouths with all due diligence habitable. As Rabbi Heschel said of prayer, not to be granted anything, but to be worthy of granting, to be worthy in the very throat of the song, like a bubble in the filling pool of your bodying, sat in the curtained dark, singing, still point of the tuning world. Excellent. Thanks very much. Um, <clears throat> so you clearly take influence from um, a lot from more kind of traditional classic styles and form in your writing um, and it's it's often well always very elegant and should we say highbrow <laughs> you, um, you, you used the word grandiloquent earlier and um, I was struggling to think of the right words to apply to that without it sounding you know like a negative thing so it's not at all um, obviously I myself write in formal style a lot too, and I don't think there's enough of us doing that mm -hmm. anymore. <laughs> it seems um, to be almost frowned <coughs> upon nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, but what I wanted to ask is, um, how far does your style influence your actual subject matter? Um, and also, have you found that that relationship has changed over the course of your um, writing career, as it were? Hmm. Um, I would say in many instances it's probably closer to the other way around in my case, that often the subject matter will have an effect on um, how the style becomes apparent as I'm, as I'm sitting with it and as I'm thinking about it. Um, so, yeah, a very ready example being that usually um, if I'm, you know, thinking about uh, if some material kind of arises for a poem about about love or relationships, then it will often happen that a sonnet form mm. suggests itself, simply because, um, you know, partly, I suppose, because inescapably as a result of 
my education and you know, the influences that that's had on me, I know that that is very strongly associated with um, with that particular theme yeah. and how, as a genre, that's worked itself out over time. And it, oftentimes, you know, that that is that's how it will happen normally. I will, you know, I'll sit and work on a subject matter, and it will happen that. Um, a line or a cadence will fall out in a certain way that then when the rest of the poem takes shape around it it will it will come to that form usually without you know without too much forcing hopefully of its own accord yeah. it will it will come out that way um, as for how that's changed I think was uh, in in performance how performing has has affected that um... No, actually, that was my next question. Um, okay. I mean, I was wondering how how the relationship between uh, your style and subject matter might have changed. Um, but perhaps, yeah, if we could hear about your experience regarding performance mm -hmm. in relation to your writing style. Okay. I think I can take the two of those together, really, because I think they tell basically two different sides of a very similar story. Um, the style over time has... I think I've I can I know that I've made a conscious effort at times to pare back on some of the um, accoutrement of a more um, a more apparently high flown style. Um, part of that I think is just a process of realizing that I can't go through my entire writing career sounding like a pastiche of T.S. Eliot. As much as I loved T.S. Eliot and as much of an influence as his style had on me, especially in my, my late teens and my early 20s, um, oftentimes I would just sound like you know badly done early 20th century modernist poetry written by some ghastly adolescent. And I think there's been an effort to strip back some of the unnecessaries and just allow more of the more of the poem to speak for itself rather yeah. than me feeling the need to you know constantly um add little flourishes to it um it's uh, you know there's there's been i suppose more of an effort and more of an impulse towards something like simplicity mm. um which yeah, hopefully has allowed the poems more room to breathe. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, performing has also taught me quite a lot about um, paying more attention to just to the whole phenomenon of sound. Um, yeah, I, we've um, my whole education, as much as we would uh, constantly be reminded to pay attention to lyrical effect, was very page bound in many mm. ways of necessity, and it's meant that. Sometimes, in spite of my best efforts to try, I had kind of lost an appreciation, I think, over the years for um, just the raw facts of things like cadence and rhythm and beat work. Um, and that kind of attention to craft does only really, I think, come out fully, or does it for me anyway, when you stop trying to be deliberately, ostentatiously... Yeah. Um, kind of highfalutin about it and just pay more attention to the sound of the thing as it hits the audience. And that I've probably learned more about than anything else as yeah. a result of performing and as a result of hearing some absolutely excellent poets perform. Mm -hmm. um, poets who give just as much attention um, to those elements uh, as, as, um, as a more formal approach to style would give you to things like enjambement and 
the structure of the poem on the page, yeah. um, they will pay so much attention to the structure of the poem in the air as it is heard. Mm-hmm. Um, I've heard some poets do absolutely extraordinary things uh, since I started performing that has really forced me to raise my game in yeah. that way. No, it can feel a little bit hard to justify if you write in, in those kind of styles, um, as you and I are given to do, when there's such an abundance at the moment of um, you know spoken word styles uh-huh. um, and slam and, and that sort of thing. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. But yeah, when you when you think about it, it's it can still be relevant when you think in terms of, as you were saying, the sound and the rhythm and, and how it can work. Absolutely, um, absolutely. And... Um... If I, if I might suggest, I think, for me anyway, working within a very formal set of restrictions sometimes can actually force me to pay more attention to those things. Mm. Um, it's one of the reasons why I think that it's just quite important as a poet that you have to have some kind of sense of craft and a sense of what's gone before you and how other people have used this form before. Yeah. Um, because otherwise you are kind of arbitrarily closing yourself off, I think, to a whole set of real surprises that can come out of just how inventive a poet is forced to be when they put quite a narrow set of restrictions on themselves and say, I will only write a poem with this meter, with this number of lines per stanza, it's going to work like this. And that means that they can't cut any corners. Mm -hmm. They have to really strain every muscle that they have to produce creative and ingenious effects and the results can be absolutely staggering and as a result of knowing how to do that well I think I've I certainly have been able to write better free verse as a result of doing that yes because it just forces you to pay more attention to just the raw stuff yeah and you can pull it back once you've restricted yourself in that way Uh I don't know about you but I get a massive sense of achievement if I have managed to to create something within those boundaries. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. And then, yeah, trying to, to maybe pull back a bit and, and simplify it. Mm-hmm, yeah. It abs- does become easier once you've done that. Absolutely, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And oftentimes, b- bizarrely, the smaller the poem, the greater the sense of achievement. Because you know, I've, I've become fascinated in the last few years with very, very small-scale poetic forms like haiku and senryu. And um, you know all the classical styles of um, Chinese uh, classical poetry that's kept to four lines a piece, um, uh, and in the kind of Zen tradition where there has to be a setup of uh, you have a proposition in the A and B line, you have uh, an opposition in the C line, and then you have to synthesize them in the D line in mm. some way. Um, being able to pull off a really staggering poetic effect in that concentration of space um, is an achievement that still kind of blows me sideways when I come across a really good example of it. And it's fun. Mm-hmm. I gotta admit, <laughs> I yeah. yeah. As, uh, I mean, as, as a way of trying to see the world, um, it's very interesting. This is one of the reasons why it's the thing that eventually prompted me to go on Twitter was almost jokingly a friend of mine, uh, when I mentioned a few years ago that I didn't think I could use Twitter because I didn't know what I could say in 140 characters that wouldn't be just adding to the noise apart from haiku. And she said, okay, well then why don't you write haiku on Twitter? And I did. And that was about, oh God, blimey, um, 
three, four years ago now, I think, possibly longer, um, and have produced quite a lot of short poems since then. Um, but it means that you're always at least, at least uh, in a very rough and ready way, you've always got some, some way of seeing the world floating around on your peripheries of vision that are searching for or open to poetic effects as mm. they arise. And it makes for a much more interesting procession through the day-to-day -day world than, than one might otherwise have, yeah. I think, anyway. Great. Um, so I'd like to have your third and final poem, please, sure. if I may. This uh, is a poem uh, in keeping with the theme that we were talking about not long ago. Um, this is a sonnet called Some Excuses for Keeping Quiet. If you knew I got this excited when you talked of Paris, or Hemingway, or told me that the earth smell after rain had its own word, and it was petrichor, so much that I lost all words of my own, just worked through worn jokes which still made you smile. If you knew I saw your chocolate cheekbone and thought of words like lips and edible, of course you'd be concerned. Who wouldn't be? There's only so much I can say to you. Two hours later, coffee finished, we will hug, fashionably, and when we do, I will lose some of my thoughts in your hair. I'll probably talk about this later. Thank you. I've been trying to move away from writing in forms recently, mm -hmm. um, but you make me want to take up sonnets again. Oh, well, that's... <laughs> I, I choose to regard this as a good thing. Yeah, it's a compliment. Good, um, good. Great, so lastly, uh, where can people find out more about your work? Uh, do you have websites, blogs, books? I do. Um, uh, first of all, uh, all of the poems that I've read uh, in the last half hour or so are from my three self-published pamphlets that are all available over Amazon Kindle or directly from me. They are, in the order that they were released, Footprints, Long Walks Between Little Lights, and The Everywhere Room. And uh, there's about 20 poems in each one, and they're available for about two quid a toss. Alternatively, uh, you can also follow me on Twitter, where you'll see some of my shorter work, um, Haiku and a New Form, that uh, my meditation group basically invented at this point, called the Naiku, uh, and some other short stuff. That's at TimKiley1. Uh, I've also very recently blown the dust off my old WordPress account and uh, you can find both my uh, more recent poetry and hopefully more updates on my poetry in future as well as writing about poetry or semi-literary things of one sort or another on there. That's uh, www.timkileypoetry, all one word, .wordpress.com. Thank you. Um, so obviously, as usual, all the links that Tim mentioned will be uh, written beneath the YouTube video. Um, so that's it. Thank you very much, Tim. No problem. Thank you very pleasure. much. And my and likewise, yes. And thanks everyone for listening. Bye bye.